Well, gang's over here. There's always a weak spot. We just need to find it. The cash is brought out and stacked 15 minutes before the van does the pickup. That is when you hit. On Monday morning, after a four-game stand with New York, 60,000 beers, food, merchandise, total haul, three and a half million. Taking down the Cathedral of Boston. Priceless. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 268, The Town. I'd say of the movies Ben Affleck directed, this is definitely my favorite one to watch. I know he did win Best Picture, or I know Best Director. Argo didn't win Best Picture. No, he won Best Picture. Oh, Not, he won Best Picture. He wasn't even nominated for right, Best Right, right, okay, yeah, yeah. But this is the one that I think is the most fun to watch, and it's not really close for me. It's interesting you didn't mention Gone Baby Gone. I do like Gone Baby Gone, but I think this is a more fun watch. Yeah, this is probably more fun. I would say it's debatable between this and Gone Baby Gone as to which is better. Yeah, I think that's fair. Argo is what it is. It's entertaining. I don't have much interest in revisiting it ever. Same. And I never saw the one after that. It sucks. Yeah, yeah, it seemed like everyone knew it sucked because even the studio was not even promoting it that yeah, much. Yeah, it was not very good. Coming wa- off of Best Picture. I watched it some lonely Live night by over night? the pandemic. Yeah. I think it's I called. Th- yeah, I think that's right. Okay, before we discuss the town, let's remind our listeners to follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like a sticker, let us know on Twitter, and we will send you one for free. Yeah, I'm going to have to dust them off if somebody wants one. It's been (laughs) a while. (laughs) Sticker requests have slowed down. Yeah, yeah. And if you are so inclined, you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach, Z-A-C-H, 1983, and Matt Crosby, where we log movies and review them sometimes. and Jump into the comments and interact with us on the apps see what's happening yeah (laughs) yeah and feel free to engage with us on twitter we love hearing from everyone absolutely even if you want to trash the show no please (laughs) come on (laughs) so the town was released in 2010 it was directed by ben affleck screenplay by affleck peter craig and aaron stockard based on the novel prince of thieves by chuck hogan had a budget of $37 million and a box office of $154 million. Wouldn't have thought that that would have been the title of the book. Prince of Thieves. Yeah. I don't know. It seems kind of generic. 
<laughs> oh, and the town doesn't? No, but I'm assuming it's as Boston-centric in the book, right? Like, it's not yeah. like... Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It just seems sort of like a throwaway title. Well, I think there's more about fathers and sons. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's probably what they're trying to say. And Doug carrying the reputation of his father on yeah, his shoulders. Yeah, it sort of has like the uh, Place Beyond the Pines type theme. A little bit, yeah. Although this is much more of a straightforward heist movie. Absolutely. The town was well received and earned one Academy Award nomination for Jeremy Renner for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, and sort of a, I guess, a moment for him around this time because, I mean, it's not very far removed from The Hurt Locker. Yeah. And it kind of seemed like Jeremy Renner maybe was a big get, and then, you know, he's like the 10th most important Avenger for the next <laughs> 10 years of his life. Yeah, I definitely think that he was having a big moment that's cooled off a little bit. But I do yeah. think he's good in this, though. As like, Oh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely captures a certain type of guy. Right. That in some sense may be unique to Boston, but in another sense is a part of every city. Right. These kind of guys yeah. lingering around oh, somewhere. Yeah. Also had a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. I remember seeing this with you in the theater. Same. I think we had a little bit of a, a crew that this night. Was, yeah, this was during our heyday of like being able to... <laughs> I mean, it was, it was making me kind of sad because I'm just like, I missed being able to go to like a, a bar before a movie, get a nice appetizer. Yeah. I mean, this was obviously out at the mills, but you can sum that up with whatever locations we were going to doing some version of that. I feel like we could bring it back. It's a beat scene out there. There are no restaurants left. <laughs> yeah. There's barely any movie theaters yeah. left. So as far as this podcast goes... We've done a few heist films. We've done Point Break. We did Hell or High Water. We did Heat. Yeah. Which is a huge influence on this film. Heat, Point Break, it's almost hard not to draw some. With the masks? Yeah, yeah. Also, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, a Boston crime thriller. Yeah, that was also another big influence on Affleck. It all started in 2006 with director Adrian Lyne, mostly known for his erotic film work and he actually did oh. a film with Ben Affleck that came out this year called Deep Water. That's right. But he was initially attached to adapt Chuck Hogan's novel but then had a falling out with Warner Brothers over He the, wanted more sex in it. No, it was over the $37 million budget and the 2-hour runtime. And so the 2-hour runtime is sort of a crucial part of the story. Because even Affleck's delivered cuts of the film were well over. I think his working cut was like four hours, and then <laughs> they got it down to like 240, which is the edition they've released as the extended cut, mm -hmm. and does tell a fuller story and gives you much more explanation about certain things. But the studio was adamant that it needed to be two hours. They got it down to about 208 or whatever the final is. Is there more backstory on the other two guys from the crew? Because it does stand no. out how those <laughs> guys get not. like those guys get nothing. Yeah, no, those guys are not important <laughs> ever in any version. Right. <laughs> ben Affleck coming off of Gone Baby Gone and essentially one of the definitive Boston guys takes it over. He immerses himself in it, but as he points out, he's from Cambridge. Just because he's from Boston, it doesn't mean that he knows anything about Charlestown. Right. He, he still did yeah. do like a lot of research and go down there. 
I guess Charlestown is like sort of its own little world sure of part of boston and i will say when i would go to boston for field trips charlestown was not a part of town that we were spending any time in. <laughs> yeah but they filmed it on location in boston in cambridge in charlestown i think with affleck at the helm there is an authenticity to the portrayal of not only the locations but the people themselves and i think that that becomes crucial because there are some shortcomings, in my opinion, in some of the dialogue that, on the surface, when you're seeing it in the theater for the first time, are not much of an issue. Right. But when you're watching it three times to prepare for this fucking podcast, you're like, yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ, do they need to explain themselves every time they talk? Especially John Hamm's character, yeah, who yeah, is always sure. explaining everything. That is noticeable. But I do think the positive side, to your point, though, is the authenticity. All the characters seem so genuine and cut straight out of life. Yeah. It did just pop in my head. I kind of feel like I remember seeing the trail for this the first time. And like you see the guys robbing the bank with the masks. And I'm like, what is this? Point break, but they're not joking around. <laughs> like, it's serious. Yeah, the tone is definitely a little different. Yeah, yeah. Which, in a way, makes it less fun than Point Break. For sure. But but the action sequences are fucking cool. Yeah. It's interesting. I think that sometimes the dramatic elements of the town are a little self-serious to the point of parody. But yeah. it delivers so much in the action stuff and some of the unintentional and intentional comedy. And as we've alluded to the performances notably from Renner but everybody really including what I thought was going to be like a really star making performance from Blake Lively oh, yeah, right. that el- ended up really not doing that much for anybody but <laughs> Except I, for us, it yeah. definitely stuck out to me right. at the time <laughs> as we said Heat huge influence oh yeah Affleck was also very interested in The Departed and The Friends of Eddie Coyle and a few other films Although it's funny, like Heat ends up being like this almost epic thing that transcends a crime movie whereas this feels like a, a really well cut together almost more hollywood crime movie but it i guess thinking about now that ben affleck had these like long versions it seemed like he had something more like he in mind well yeah i think sometimes every director thinks that this is gonna be their epic yeah yeah you know we all know the four-hour movies that exist and <laughs> zach stuff. snyder's this is justice league yeah and then the reality is the studio is like no 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 yeah. Gone Baby Gone gets you two hours. Right. All right. It doesn't get you three. Yeah. All right. Then they <laughs> let him do whatever after Argo, and we saw how that turned out. The crew at the center of the film consists of Doug McRae, played by Ben Affleck. His father is portrayed in one scene by Chris Cooper, playing Stephen McRae. Those two teaming back up after being in Men at Work, I think, are the company men. I think The Company Men came after this. Did it? I think it was a 2011. Okay, that makes sense. It was some somewhere down in our recession years. But yeah, they could have been around the same time, yeah, though, yeah. in just the right. release dates. Steven is serving 40 years for a notorious robbery job that we'll touch more on later as we go. I think Chris Cooper, the hangdog, yeah. stereotypical chris cooper performance here oh he's great in the one scene that he does in addition to doug we have jeremy renner playing james jem coughlin who is coming off of a nine-year sentence 
for murdering someone, which was pled down to manslaughter, and he's the loose cannon of yeah. the group. Always an interesting backstory to have that you've murdered someone and don't seem to be that old, and you're just sort of out on the streets. Yeah. He doesn't seem to be too broken up about it either. <laughs> no. Should have run track. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm going to spare everyone my attempt at a Boston accent, <laughs> thankfully, because yeah. God knows I won't be able to do it. Mark Wahlberg was originally someone that Affleck had in consideration for this part. It seems like, does he not come up for every role? <laughs> Especially when Boston's involved. Yeah. It was his brother, Casey, who recommended Jeremy Renner after the two had worked together on the assassination of Jesse oh. James wow. by the coward Robert Ford. His sister is played by Blake Lively, Krista Chris Coughlin. I'll probably be referring to her as Krista and Chris at various points. Just a dynamite character, someone who I'd like to spend some time with in my life. Yeah, she's going to give you the best 15 minutes of your life, followed by the most terrifying six months of your life. (laughs) She has a toddler, a daughter named Shine. (laughs) I was like, who is this? Like a rapper from Bad Boy Records? Shine? S-H-Y-N-E. So when I was reading the novel, which... It's possible I was reading the novel before the movie came out. I think you were. I, I feel like I remember this. Yeah. Because I remember being like, how do you say this name? Yeah. I was like, is it Shin? <laughs> is it some <laughs> Cheyenne with missing letters? I, I didn't get it. Yeah, I do remember you reading it before we went to Sock. That always puzzled me. I'm like, yeah, but you're going to know what happens. And you were just okay with that. I guess I was just loyal to the idea that like the book is the true story. Yeah, then, yeah. You know, this is just an adaptation. I get it. A rapper named Slane, aka George Carroll, plays Albert Glonzy McClone, and Owen Burke plays Desmond Des Eldon. A guy who I don't even think his name was clickable on the Wikipedia, this actor. Yeah, although he a- appeared in. Coda, which just won Best Picture, evidently. Oh, wow. So I don't, okay. I don't remember him being in it, but yeah. <laughs> he was in Coda. He must just be like a local New England guy. Okay. Because Coda, I think, also takes place in the New England yeah, area. Yeah, I think so. Dez and Glonzy, not going to be huge factors in this movie. Yeah. Glonzy's the wheel man. Dez is like the tech guy that intercepts the distress call signals. Don't really say or do all that much. No. Do these guys get way less of a cut <laughs> when they do these heists? Because it just feels like they're such non-factors. I would give Jem less of a cut because he's like, always almost fucking it all up every second. <laughs> that's true, but it does really just feel like a two-man crew with just two yeah, empty Yeah, but that's jerseys. just personality yeah, Well, that's true, yeah. In reality, you it need seems the like man. they're probably doing more work. Well, that's true, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we also have Rebecca Hall as Claire Kesey. John Hamm as FBI Special Agent Adam Frawley. Pete Postlethwaite as Fergie. Hit it, Fergie! All the time I turn around, brothers gather around, always looking at me up and down, looking at me. Not that Fergie. No. Titus Welliver as Detective Dino Ciampa. Victor Garber as David the Bank Manager. That's right. We mentioned Victor Garber in Titanic, and you might be thinking, like, wow, he's only in this for two minutes. What's the point of that? Well, there is a story. Okay. Garber was friends with Affleck because Affleck at the time was married to Jennifer Garner. Oh, right. And Victor Garber 
was on the show Alias with okay. Jennifer Garner, and he officiated their wedding. Wow. So okay. he did this as a favor, and in the extended cut, he is in another scene Okay. in the hospital. Yeah. I don't think I knew Rebecca Hall until this movie. I don't know if it was the first thing she was in, but I think it was it's, the first It's thing not I the saw first her. thing she was in, but I, I'm sort of in the same place where I may have actually seen something she had been in, but it didn't register. Right. So okay. yeah, she did seem new to me. Right. And yeah, this was probably not the second thing I had seen Jeremy Renner in, but it was the second time like it had registered with me. Right, right, yeah. That this you was didn't the guy. remember him from SWAT at that point. No, or Jesse James, like oh, which yeah, I had yeah. seen. So, I've seen it and I'm still like when you brought that up, I was like, Oh he's just <laughs> like one of the dudes. That. Yeah. <laughs> just one of the dudes. Yeah, okay, right. The trailer for the film tells us there are over three hundred bank robberies in Boston every year. Most of these professionals live in a one-square-mile neighborhood called Charlestown. And the film itself opens with the words, quote, One blue-collar Boston neighborhood has produced more bank robbers and armored car thieves anywhere in the world. It follows this up with a quote from an anonymous federal agent saying, quote, Bank robbery became like a trade in Charlestown, passed down father to son. So... What is true and what isn't true based well, on this? I was like, holy shit. It seems like it would be easy to incriminate these people if there's that many Yeah, <laughs> There could only be from... so many guys. Yeah, yeah. Is this all accurate or a bit of movie make-believe? Well, it actually is a bit of both, but mostly bullshit. Okay. <laughs> Those statistics seem insane. Well, first of all, what percentage of them are they even convicting people on? Like, if they don't catch the guys... Do they know they're from Charlestown? According to a September 2010 article in the Boston Globe, Charlestown was once known as an area where bank robbers were concentrated, but has not been since the mid-1990s. And the subject has been a sore point for townies. Now much of the neighborhood has been gentrified. The paper reported, There is some sense of rivalry between townies, people who lived in the historically Irish Catholic neighborhood for decades, and toonies, Largely white-collar workers who arrive with gentrification, Mm -hmm. but most of that has died down. The film gets into this a little bit, the sense of class and the sense of community and how there's a stubborn sense of pride even when the thing that they're known for is not necessarily the greatest thing. Right. In the extended cut, which I will reference from time to time, just a fair warning, they do explain Toonies a little bit more. I don't know if answer that Doug actually gives Claire is real, but it had something to do with stealing car stereos. Oh, yeah. And so they provided the tunes. Right. <laughs> it seemed like he was making it up, like it wasn't a, a real thing, but I don't know. Yeah. But I think it's an interesting dynamic to make the Claire character of New England, but not of That's right. the same world. Yeah. She's from Marblehead, I think, yeah. which yeah. It might be something you only learn like, in the extended cut. I can't remember. Attleboro, where I grew up. We're fucked if we see a helicopter, we're fucked if we see SWAT. We see a cruiser, stop, take out the engine blocks, keep moving. No one needs to get hurt. Now these guards like to test you though. They want to get hurt for $10 an hour, don't get in the way. Let's go.
the car! Go, go, go! Everybody away! Stop against the wall! You, away from the computer! Get the fucking kid! Back up, back go, go! Get the fucking kid! Nine o'clock? Don't lie to us. It's 8 15. Listen, it's not your money. You understand? Mm -hmm. Don't lie to us again. It's sweetheart in the corner. Get in the corner. You too, brother, man. Fucking friend of yours? Let's go! Nobody did anything. What? Nothing. Huh? What'd you say? Nobody did anything. You pulled the alarm? No. No. Did you? I didn't pull any alarm. We were leaving you, motherfucker! Easy, easy. That's enough.
after this. Cops get us walled in, we're gonna need it. The film opens with a robbery, which of course is the best way to do a heist movie, whether it's Point Break or Heat or yep. whatever. And the guys in the crew follow an armored car delivery into a bank, which I can only imagine really makes for a bigger score. You're timing right. that right. So it's yeah. essentially you're like you're heisting both. You're hitting it at the right point. The masks this time for the guys are these ghoulish skeletons with what seem to be like dreads yeah, or something. You're never going to beat the president's masks <laughs> That's right. in Point yeah. Break, which are the greatest heist movie masks of all time. Absolutely. But I would say the nuns. The nuns is close. Next robbery are yeah. pretty cool. And that shot when we get to it, when they're just driving by that kid and he's looking up and he sees like the nuns with these yeah. like shotguns or automatic rifles, it's, it's pretty great. That won't be until the next score. But for this first one, we have four lifelong friends from the neighborhood of Charlestown, Doug McRae, Jem Coughlin, Glonzy, and Dez. They work as a unit, and it's obvious that Jem is the wild card right away, going a little above and beyond, a little too amped up. Even yeah. when they're having that pregame discussion yeah. where they're planning this out they're the last second like hey this is what we're doing blah blah blah. it seems like jem is just a little bit on the edge the I whole know. time he's always wanting to put his own stamp on things for some reason if he could just go along everything would be fine well yeah that's the whole point if you yeah. just go along you wouldn't really have a movie <laughs> if you just have successful bank robberies if Doug could walk <laughs> away at the right time you wouldn't yeah. have a movie but in this opening scene, we don't have the whole gem backstory. We don't know about the nine years he's been waiting. We don't know how much he's been chomping at the bit. We don't even know until way deep into the movie what the motivation was for that murder and why he feels this debt needs to be repaid in some <laughs> sense back to him. I would just be like, Jem. Or, is it Jim or Jem? <laughs> I would just be like, dude, you should be counting your blessings every day. You murdered someone and you only did nine years. That's pretty good. You got your whole life in front of you still. But it seems like once you go into prison for nine years and it's probably pretty rough. You're not going back. Well, first of all, yeah, you're not going back. And second of all, I think you change. You're not able to see the world the That's way that true. you're saying it. It's yeah. like the world owes you now. Oh, yeah, yeah, He comes into these heists with a chip on his shoulder looking for the potential for violence or escalation into something else, which is not really a good mindset Right. To be bringing somebody into. No. He's a little bit of a loose cannon. This movie's only 12 years old. Not even, because we're not even to the time of year it came out. And it already feels super dated because they're asking for everybody's Blackberries. Oh, yeah, yeah. Blackberries up here. Although that almost seemed dated in 2010. They must have had some kind of a deal or yeah. something. Because, yeah, by 2010, a lot of people would have had it's, iPhones. It was, it was a heavily iPhone market. There's a little bit of a good cop, bad cop routine with Claire, with Doug being the calming presence, putting his hand on her hand when she's trying to open the safe. Right. She's the assistant manager or the manager. It's really hard to tell which is which. They kind of refer to them both as managers and assistant managers throughout the film, uh -huh. especially in the extended cut when there's more scenes involving yeah, yeah. them and stuff. But whatever. She's one of the managers. She's assistant to the manager. She's trying to open the safe. She's freaking out. Doug's calming her down while Jem's freaking out. <laughs> yeah, they needed to put Jem on like a mild sedative before these heists. And it's actually Claire with her foot that sets off the silent alarm. Oh, yeah. Jem misguided on who he thinks it is. <laughs> he takes it out on David. <laughs> yeah. Victor Garber. Poor Victor Garber just getting pistol whipped. 
Jem bashes him a couple times in the face, and when that happens, they make it a point to let you know that Claire looks up, and between the edge of Jem's mask and the top of his shirt, right, a tattoo is briefly visible. <laughs> it's one of those fighting Irish guys. Yeah, it's like the Notre Dame logo, yeah. except he's holding a bag of money in one hand and a gun in the other. <laughs> it's actually kind of a cool tattoo yeah. if you're a bank robber, I guess. <laughs> Although, if you are a criminal, it's probably not a good idea to get cool tattoos right. that people will that remember. be noticeable and memorable. In the chaos of the aftermath of the alarm being set off, Jem decides to bring Claire along as a temporary hostage, much to the chagrin of the others, especially Doug. She ultimately is released unharmed, blindfolded and barefoot next to the beach and told to walk until her feet touched the water before removing her blindfold. Yeah. And then you have the big, the town. Right, right. Yeah. It's a pretty cool pre-title sequence. Yeah. FBI agent Frawley and Detective Dino Ciampa are on the case. Now, Don Draper, this was like right in the midst of Mad Men. So seeing him pop up, John Hamm, I don't think he had done a ton of movies at this point. Not sure. I can't really remember, but yeah, he definitely has the right look for this part. Oh, yeah. Although I do think that I struggle the most with his character. Yeah. I'm not sure how I would feel about it overall if the extended cut was the movie because it adds a whole different dimension to his character that makes it more interesting where he tries to date Claire. Oh, for real? Yeah, they go out okay. on like one date, and then he kind of wants to go on a second one, and she's like, are we allowed to do that? And he's like, well, no. Okay. He's more personally pissed off well, when well, he finds I out about I will say Doug. this. He does treat this case like he has this chip on his shoulder, not knowing like that part of the backstory. He almost does seem like he's taking this stuff personally. Yeah, although he wouldn't feel that way until he finds out that yeah. Claire was dating Doug, which is still you know pretty deep into the movie right. either way. He points out the obvious, though, that this is a very professional, meticulously organized job done by a professional crew who knows what they're doing. Nice job. Hey, you stopped on the way down. You had to light a couple of house fires, stick up a liquor store, maybe. I don't know. Are we taking hostages now? No, we're not taking hostages now. Take the scenic route? Got a problem. What? Oh, look. So what? What's the matter? Let me see that thing. She lives four blocks away from me. Yeah, I know where we are, Lones. She didn't see anything. Are you sure? Taking her for a ride didn't help. I'm gonna start a looking at a car. We'll find out. Find out what? If she needs to get scared. She's already scared. Well, maybe not scared enough. I'll do it. Well, you gotta do it. Because you're the reason we're having this conversation. Yeah, but I'm gonna get it done. What are you gonna get done? Huh? You're gonna get picked up for intimidating a witness. You walk within 100 feet of her, that's 10 years. Okay, you got two strikes against you already. They're going to bury you in jail. I'm just going to point out in the aftermath of some of you already hearing several clips, possibly in this episode, there are some dialogue changes between the different versions of the films okay. and also the clips online use different versions that maybe don't have as much swearing or whatever. This might be pulling back the curtain a bit much, but we're not cutting our own clips from these movies. We just take what's already available <laughs> yeah. out there in the world. And so it's, we're sort of relying on, on what other people have already posted out there. Yes. So I'm just using whatever's available for this movie. I just want to clarify that some of what you might be hearing might be from the extended cut or just a variation on whatever cut. Yeah. 
Because I noticed that with the available clips for this movie, they're all over the map. When I do lines from movies on the show and I'm constantly misquoting them, I should just say that's the reason. (laughs) (laughs) The crew took Claire's driver's license and then discover she lives in the neighborhood pretty close. Doug ends up being the one to follow her to find out if she's told anything to the police. Yeah, because I mean, he wants to ensure that Jim doesn't do anything crazy. <laughs> yeah, him being the one to go check to see how things are, give her the optical pat down. I just think he's a bad choice. For Find it. out if she needs to get scared. Yeah, <laughs> she's already scared. Right? Maybe not scared enough. <laughs> I think this is a good judgment call by Doug to take control here. The other two are also not really on board for Jem's antics, but they don't have the sway within the group to speak up. Right. It's really only Doug that Doug can Doug is definitely like the leader, although he does all the plans and everything. He ties everything together. Yeah, they don't spend a ton of time explaining that, but it is mentioned yeah. that, that essentially he's planning the jobs and he's doing the legwork. Although Frawley is a little suspicious of Claire and asking her the tough questions, she essentially is dismissed as a suspect at this point. They're really isn't much beyond like well she let them into the safe but they don't really have anything she doesn't seem to be involved she is shaking from fear in the aftermath of what's happened to her we get our first introduction to fergie the florist it's very brief here Jem dropping off the cut of the money telling him to wash it under the sink that's right and we get that money laundering montage which is a little longer in the extended cut where they go and they buy a ton of drugs and then sell the drugs and then they go to the strip club and the casino and And John Hamm's character is like narrating over this right like explaining what they're doing at this point yeah it's kind of cool the follow-up bar scene though when Doug shows up and joins everyone who's already there drinking and celebrating Doug's father's exploits this would be a perfect example of what I was talking about with this expository dialogue that I feel like explains so much as I mentioned, I'm not trying to be hard on this movie. Right, right. I really enjoy it. But as I mentioned, when you watch it three times in a week, you're just like, my God, this doesn't feel natural at a certain point. Yeah. Because these are guys who have known each other for their whole lives. And seemingly hang out almost every day. And it seems like some of their conversations are for the benefit of the audience in a way that does not seem natural to me. Like to explain that Doug is sober. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Poor sober bastard. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, how many times would they still be saying that? Why don't that? you go order a Shirley Temple? Or, hey, I was just trying to tell these motherfuckers about your father. They offer him a chance to get off, to give up his friends, or 40 years. He says, suck a dick, give me the 40. It's like, how many times have they told the right, story right, to each other? Yeah. But I get it. It's for the audience's sure, benefit. Sure. But yeah. there are times in the movie where it feels a little clumsy. Well, it just feels like there's too many lines to serve the backstory. We'll give some more on Doug's father later, like I said. This is also our introduction to Jem's sister, Chris, who has a history with Doug. In the book, it's a little more clear as to what the history is and how this all plays out, what Doug's feelings are, because in a novel you can sort of provide this interiority to the characters that you can't really on screen. You're just sort of watching them. You don't know what's going on in their heads as much. Right. But casting Blake Lively is an interesting choice because she's probably far too beautiful for this (laughs) particular role. 
it's hard to buy anyone that looks like her as trashy, but that's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's why she does a good job. I think so, too. The character feels real to me. The only problem is she's about 16 or 17 years younger than Affleck, so you're trying to figure out what well, they dated their whole lives. I, I don't understand. Well, although when did they I, date exactly? I, did, I feel like he was supposed to be playing younger. No, he is, okay. but... They kind of act like he's not that many years removed from his failed hockey career. Right, but it's hard to buy still. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that they wanted somebody older and less attractive looking, but she managed to win them over and get the part. But I think that that's why the town kind of works, is that Affleck has a few gorgeous acting people in it. Rebecca Hall, Blake Lively himself, even... John Hamm, whoever. And then, you know, you scatter in the faces that look like they could fit in. That's for real. The people, yeah, that look like they would really live there. (laughs) (laughs) One of the great things about the fighter, actually. Yeah. Doug's sobriety is brought up and I guess is indicative of him trying to make a change in his life. Mm -hmm. How bad does that meeting stink though where he goes to in the one scene where he this, the guy's telling the story about the eskimo yeah right i was His like wife. what does this story mean you know <laughs> this part must have been so forgettable to me it's not like i watched it this time and i was like oh this is the first time i've ever seen this scene but it never really like stuck with me that doug is completely sober now i right. guess it's not something that they harp on a lot through much of the film it's basically like narrowed down to this section well it also doesn't really factor in much yeah with- yeah the rest of the story. He doesn't fall off the wagon. He does in the extended cut. Oh. Yeah. That's my cut. Doug ends up fucking Chris that night, and it does feel like a relapse in its own way. True. He Be- seems shameful. <laughs> he seems to equate his time with Krista as the same thing as his time with Oxy's and Just Coke. a bad time in his life, right? It's now, an granted, effective- it does seem like it comes with... Being with Krista. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's an effective scene, and you get it, but it's also completely outrageous. <laughs> Especially in the extended cut where she's like banging on his door trying to get at him, and uh-huh. he's like not having it at first. And that's the issue you run into when you cast people that look like Blake Lively. And why I sort of get the whole argument why it becomes hard for actresses like her or Olivia Wilde or whoever who sort of have a tough time navigating a career at a certain point because they're too attractive. Right. And then you can't be normal characters anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because that's all anyone's thinking about. <laughs> it's like, w- wait. What do you mean this guy's not going to let her in his apartment? I know. Yeah. <laughs> what fantasy world is this? Uh, excuse me. I, are, are you doing laundry? Huh? Just, uh, just wondered if you had any change. The machine is out. Can't help you. Sorry. Okay. I can just uh, hang him up when I get home. Yeah, I'm 
fine. I'm fine. Thank you. I'm fine. Yeah. Well, this is embarrassing. <laughs> you got nothing to be embarrassed for. Mm -hmm. Do you need help? Just having a bad week. I understand. I like to have a good cry at the nail salon. <laughs> so open right up to the ladies. They're very understanding. <laughs> but, you know, you like the laundromat, so that's fine. <laughs> hey, why don't you let me buy you a drink? Make up for letting you down with the quarters. I'll, uh, you know, see if we can turn your week around. Doug tracks Claire to a laundromat, and they end up interacting. She eventually breaks down from the stress of what's happened to her when she sees David's blood on a shirt collar yeah. in her laundry. Usually a good state to ask a girl on a date, <laughs> having just a visible breakdown. Doug steps in to comfort her, and now we're off to the races as to where this is obviously heading. Yeah. Now, it stuck out to me more on this viewing than any other one, but these two, just the worst dates, like the worst couple out of any movie. <laughs> yeah. Their conversations stink. I don't know. You do get his whole thing. She's like just this other world that he wants to get right. into and get out of he his He wants world. to escape Charlestown. But I'm not feeling like there's fireworks here. No, they don't seem to have a ton of great chemistry, although... There is a part of me that thinks of Claire as a little bit of a Debbie Downer, especially so. with some of the other yeah. shit she blurts out at random times. <laughs> and she's obviously coming off of a traumatic event, which sure. helps explain it. But yeah, it isn't the most believable relationship, and it, it definitely doesn't seem like one that would be strong enough to endure what happens later. I know, it's too early on. I was thinking of like Blue Streak. You told me you were a banker. No, bank robber. <laughs> But it does seem like you find that out in like two weeks. And it's not just you robbed banks, but also you robbed the one that I was working at. Not just that. I mean, they took her as a hostage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the deleted material, the extended cut, there's a whole other sequence where they go on their first date after this laundromat interaction. And so what we end up seeing in the theatrical cut, right. the final film, is actually their second date. Yeah. The first date is completely cut. Okay. So it makes it seem like when he shows up at her house yeah. in a car, that that's the first date. Yes, yes. But it actually is the second date. Well, They've cut out the first date, okay. which in all fairness probably is the better of the two dates, and it does make them seem like they have more of a connection. They talk about their pasts. They go on a boat. Okay. There's a whole thing. It actually is pretty extended. And so, yeah, I think that in the theatrical cut, you could definitely pick nits from their actual relationship that you see because it doesn't seem that well established now when they send doug or i guess doug makes the decision to go talk to her i was thinking to myself what can she possibly have on them now we know that she saw the tattoo right as viewers but are they thinking that i guess anything yeah anything that she might say because i guess you could look at it from the perspective of they're not in the hostage-taking business. Right. So, so they don't is... know if they've made a mistake, yeah, if they yeah, said true. something. Right. They're not really prepared for something like that. Jem's such a wild card that it threw them for a loop. And so it's possible that they gave themselves away in some way. That they wouldn't have even thought of. And the uh, fact that she lives close to them elevates that. I guess. Yeah. But aside from 
actually interacting with her, which is what Doug does. I don't know how they would even know. I know what she's saying or doing. Right. I don't know. Frawley and Dino get a tip that the guys they're looking for beat the alarm for the vault. A kid in the crew gets into the junction box. They're told, and so this ends up feeling similar to Law and Order. Yeah, there's a procedural vibe for here sure. for a few scenes where they're just going around having That's a true. brief interaction with someone. And this is how they get their tip. I was thinking to myself about this guy. He didn't even wait for like a deal to be offered to him or anything. I mean, he's <laughs> caught with guns and drugs. Well, they just condensed it down. Yeah, they needed to make it go a little faster. <laughs> yeah, it ends up being Dino that figures it out <laughs> once they realize that the person has to have some sort of connection with Veracom, the company that's sending these distress signals out, Veracom is a public company, and it's not like these other jobs where the foreman will just say that the guy was there. It's basically like the mob or something, like a no-show job or something. But Veracom's a public company. When they're not there, it's a sick day. These sick days will be recorded, and that's how they're actually able to get onto the crew in the first place is through Dez, which I don't think anybody from the crew actually ever realizes that that's where it comes from it has nothing to do with claire or anything that happened right right it does seem like doug would have thought of that i don't know doug only seems smart because he's surrounded by morons these dopes (laughs) a few days ago my bank was robbed four men took it over and opened the safe they took me as a hostage Uh, they blindfolded me and drove me around and then they stopped and let me out. Sorry. It's not your fault. The FBI guy told me it would feel like I was in mourning. FBI? You're working with the FBI? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? The guy comes by, checks in on you, and gives you a call, I kind of thing? Pretty much. They don't have any suspects, any clues, any leads, anything like that? Not that they've told me. He intimated that they were scouring Charlestown, but they were wearing masks, so. Mm. I'm sure I'd recognize their voices if I heard them again. I know. Maybe how did you think? Claire tells Doug about the bank robbery and casually reveals her conversations with the FBI. But despite this massive, insane secret hanging over their relationship and specifically over Doug's head, They quickly grow closer. Doug tells Claire of his search for his long-lost mother, who abandoned him and his father when Doug was six, and who he believes went to live with an aunt in Tangerine, Florida. At one point in life, he almost became a pro hockey player, even getting drafted, but he wasted the opportunity and came back home defeated. Eventually, Claire will become comfortable enough to tell Doug that she saw the modified fighting Irish tattoo on the back of the neck of one of the robbers. Doug realizes that this information would easily identify Jim and get them all sent to prison. Uh-huh. So I'm kind of condensing a few of their interactions a That's little true. bit. That's over a series of dates. Again, yeah. I know it gets repetitive, but in the extended cut, this all feels very different because she's confiding in him about the bank robbery for the first time on their second date, not their first date. But in the theatrical cut, it seems like they're about to go out for the first time, and she starts unloading this bank robbery right. stuff, and then all of a sudden he's got advice for her. Yeah, yeah, I it, know. 
it seems weirder that he would have so much sway, but it probably helps for the extended cut to have that other interaction. Yeah, because even though it's only one date, it's a long scene and it makes it seem like they have more of a thing going. A connection. Then, yeah. That makes her feel more like at ease and comfortable with him. Knowing the gem will kill her if he finds out, and also to protect himself, Doug slyly tries to dissuade Claire from telling the FBI by suggesting that she will be placed in witness protection and be sent to live in a different state. Which she jokingly points out, you seem to know a lot about this stuff. Well, yeah, that's one of the great jokes in the whole movie, (laughs) where he's listing off all the CSIs that he watches, and then there's this pause, and Bones. (laughs) That got a big laugh at the theater. (laughs) He succeeds, and she doesn't talk. And to my knowledge, at least what we see on screen, she never actually mentions the tattoo to anyone ever. She also tells Doug about her troubles she's been having walking through the projects and what happens as a result of her little story about bottles being thrown at her you could definitely say it becomes this manifestation of doug's guilt for what he's done to her so he feels this burden to do something drastic a really fun anti-hero scene in a movie where like (laughs) jem is such a douche but this is such a fun root for him moment it definitely reminded me of Goodwill Hunting when Robin Williams is talking to Stellan Skarsgård oh, about yeah. Will's friends and how they wouldn't hesitate to take a bath to you, he says, oh, yeah, yeah. just for asking. And this is exactly like that. Yeah. I need your help. I can't tell you what it is. You can never ask me about it later, and we're going to hurt some people. Whose car are we going to take? It's one of the great quick deliveries back and forth. Doug showing up and being like, all right, I need you to go do something with me. We're going to hurt people. You can I- never, ever ask me about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just Who, like, whose car are we take? Yeah. <laughs> it perfectly and succinctly sums up, Jem, this misguided loyalty right. that manifests itself through violence. And then the violence itself, which is out of control at all times and and not able to be harnessed by even someone as close to him as Doug. Yeah. Doug wants him to do this. Jim does it, but then takes it to that next level of extreme where he ends up shooting the guy twice in the legs. Right. There goes college soccer. (laughs) (laughs) But then also just for no reason takes his mask off. Yeah, he's just that hard. He's like, I want you to know what I look like. (laughs) Again... In the extended cut, this is way longer. They have to go buy drugs from somewhere that Just Doug to used to cop to find this guy. Because you are watching it. And you're like, how do they know yeah, who, how would these they know who these guys right. are? It seems like it take, would I take guess, like, a lot I guess the more. logic they're trying to... It is this, like, everybody knows each other in Charlestown, so it, he just knows who these guys would be. Yeah. Once Dino makes the connection about Vericom and the recorded sick days, it doesn't take long to match Desmond's sick days to... Several robberies, right. high profile, and that gives them enough ammunition to start some FBI surveillance. Frawley and Dino are able to identify the crew at that point, which links them to the local Irish mobster Fergie, of which it is weird. Krista though, is a drug mule because it does seem like Dino already knows all this stuff. Well, he's from the neighborhood, right? We which, know that. So I don't think that's weird. It makes sense to me that he does know about these people, but. Never is like bringing them up as suspects before this, even though he seems to know everything about them. Well, it seems their... like they've probably been suspects in things yeah, yeah. over okay. their lives. And obviously, Jem has 
right a record but if we're supposed to believe the statistics and that's words true. at the beginning it, yeah, there's yeah. tons that's why. of guys and crews right. and different stuff so not only is Krista a drug mule for Fergie Doug's father worked for Fergie as well the connections are pretty clear and straightforward the FBI brings up Stephen McRae's past he's known as Big Mac yeah in the early 1990s, an increase in the number of bank and armored car robberies by townies focused attention on Charlestown. In one heist in Hudson, New Hampshire, two guards were killed, and this is alluded to in the film during a scene where Agent Frawley is briefing his task force. He mentions that Doug's father is serving life for a notorious robbery in Nashua. According to Frawley, the elder McRae hijacked a bread truck, which is an armored car, up to New Hampshire, and when one of the guards saw his face, he executed both of them with their own weapons. Frawley notes that this incident led to the passing of regulations prohibiting the driver from leaving the cab, even if his partner is being held at gunpoint. Charles Hogan got the idea for his novel in 1995. It was just so remarkable that this one very small community was the focus for bank robbers, he said, but he was very aware that crime was only part of the community, and he did not want to make all the residents of the neighborhood look like criminals, which was something that Affleck was criticized a little bit for. Uh-huh. There was a little bit of a blowback of, yeah. what the fuck, this isn't even accurate, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I think that's fair. But, yeah, it's a good use of real-life events intertwined into the story. They make that Doug's father, they just yeah. change a few of the details, and the whole thing with the driver leaving the cab of the truck comes into play, actually, in their next attempted at job. That's right, yeah. I don't like the gods on that job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he definitely takes on a certain cadence when he's yelling at Jem. It's yeah. always sort of the same. <laughs> yeah, that beat. It's not going to be me and you and Chris and Shine up there fucking playing house. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> the next time we see Claire, she's on an afternoon lunch date with... Doug and just in the middle of nowhere announces, My brother died on a day like this. <laughs> By the way, like a beautiful day, which is part of it. Oh, God, I would think. Yeah. And just immediately start backing to the car. Check. <laughs> Obviously, okay. it sucks that her brother died, yeah. although it doesn't seem recent. It is what it is, but it's, it's just so one of those things where she's awkward the way she it brings out. it up. That's the thing, yeah. This plants the seed for sunny days. Yes meaning she thinks of someone dying on sunny days, so sunny days are not necessarily a good thing in her mind. Something that will factor back into the movie. But while they're out, Jem catches Doug out with her, and it's a very tense scene. And later, when confronted, Jem is still kind of coy about what the real answer is, but who is he following in this moment? Is he following Doug, or is he following Claire, or does he already know that they're going to be together? It does feel like an argument that would go further. That you wouldn't give up on until you got to an answer? It seems like he was probably following Claire. I made the, whatever. the Avalanche. Yeah, I made the avalanche. It's a very tense moment because Claire comes back to the table. Now Jem's there. She doesn't know who this guy is. She's dating a townie, but now we're taking it to the next level of townie where it's Uh, like, okay, this guy's a criminal, clearly. (laughs) Yeah, I fucking love after this scene when she's like, "Uh, okay, well, clearly you haven't been telling your friends about me. Yeah. <laughs> Doug knows that Claire would recognize the tattoo, so he's trying to position them in a way 
And then there's that great moment when Jem finally gets up from the table and Doug reaches around and hugs him so he's covering the thing. And he like grabs him by the back of the neck. We all have embarrassing friends, though. So even if there wasn't a bank robbery involved, I, I could kind of you relate to this scene. Imagine the horror of this scene. <laughs> yeah. Jem is pissed about the situation, but he's also ready for the next thing. But I, Doug it says does, it isn't ready. It is weird, this argument. Because... He does use it to just transition to, okay, well, I have this on you now, so now we have to do this other job. But it does feel like more should come out of this argument. Like you said, who were you following? What are you planning on doing? Right. What's going on? And even on Jem's side, he throws in a few There's still a level of trust. Yeah, that Doug knows what he's doing. Yeah, he's not happy about it, but despite their sort of polar opposites approaches to, to doing these jobs and Jem being a wild card and everything. They still are brothers, not literally, but they're still close. There's still trust. Doug tells him he's got it under control. He's still not happy about it, but I'm ready for the next thing. Doug doesn't want to do it because of this overeager guard that he thinks could be a problem. But then Jem starts laying the guilt trip about oh, waiting yeah. nine years, and this is what he wants to do. And you do get the sense that that has probably happened before. We don't know why yet. There's no explanation as to why there would be guilt on Doug's part, but that comes out later. And we don't really know what's happening after these jobs. We know they clean the money and stuff, but it feels quick to jump right back into another one. Aren't the spoils from the last outing? Well, that's the one thing about these heist movies they never really explain. What do they do with this money? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't seem like they ever really do anything. No, I mean, these two live together in a shitty apartment and just go to like a shitty bar. I guess you could argue that that's what Doug's whole point is, that he's trying to get out of this. He's packing himself a parachute every time, ready to leave. That's right. But he keeps getting pulled back into it. He does have that avalanche, though. Doug reluctantly agrees in order to placate Jim, saying it will be the last one. I'm thinking about um, taking a trip. One dock for a minute. Taking heat. Making a change? Yeah, don't tell me. Making a change. Either you got heat or you don't. How come you never, um... How come you never looked for a... Look for who? For my... How come you never tried to call nobody or look for her and ask around? You know, when your mother left, you cried so hard you were thrown up. All over the parlor. So I told you, if you looked around, you might find her. She'd give you an activity. I didn't think you'd carry it like a disease. Oh, you want to think she was an angel? Go ahead. I didn't look for her because there was nothing to find. Look, I got to die five times before I get out of here. But I'll see you again. This side or the other. Doug visits his father in prison. Chris Cooper with the definitive Chris Cooper look. Absolutely. Scary old man. But Doug also shares his intentions to leave town with his father. So if you haven't seen the town before, we're sort of going to touch on some spoilers for what comes later, even though it's not revealed yet. This thing with Doug's mother, how could this still be going on? I know. This long. You mean, when you find out the truth about Doug's mother, 
how is this possible that he you doesn't mean know that this? Doug never found out the truth up yeah. until when Fergie reveals it to him? Yeah, it does seem wild. Is there some denial going on? Has here? he heard of the internet? <laughs> right. <laughs> there has to be records, you know, of what right. happened to her. She's dead. I could see keeping it a secret from a little kid for a few years. Yeah, but it feels like at some point this would have come out. He just never researched it because other people would have known. Yeah, it wasn't just Are you like a couple me, people like, knew. Jem's family doesn't know. Oh, they would have known. And but he like Jem's parents are dead. Yeah. I guess I don't know. Yeah, you would think that Jem would know because his family took Doug in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. After his father went to prison, I. <laughs> I don't get it, but whatever. It seems weird to me that he just wouldn't know the truth by now. <laughs> just I know. I don't really buy that. Doug and Claire see each other again and have sex. One of the noteworthy things that come out of this is the line about his uncle being a bus driver and living across the street, and so uh-huh. he's able to see in the window. Which you said it when we were talking about this earlier, but it is true. It seems like a joke when he's saying that. Yeah, it either seems like a joke or a lame attempt to just take it to the next level, like let's get in the bedroom kind of a thing, which I think is how Claire kind of takes it. And it works. But then you find out at the end of the movie, no, they're they're planting a seed for something. Right, right. It almost seems a little gratuitous. Yeah. But okay. Watching Affleck shirtless on top of Claire here. Oh, yeah. It really made me think about that awful tattoo he has now, that huge... (laughs) dragon or whatever the uh, fuck yeah. it is that takes up his entire back I don't it know doesn't even it look good I, I know it's strange what a weird life decision what that it, was. yeah i don't know it's odd <laughs> but it is one of those love making scenes where you're thinking take my breath away is gonna start playing <laughs> like it's not really like that long though. yeah no but the soft lighting affleck shirtless yeah horrible irish catholic tattoos yeah <laughs> <laughs> nothing will top Fergie's bodyguard's tattoo, though. <laughs> that is fucking legendary. Yeah. <laughs> it's time for the next job. An armored truck robbery in the North End. The crew approaches in a van wearing nun masks, and as you pointed out earlier, there's that great slow-motion moment where I believe it's Doug, but it's hard to tell, Yeah, is in the back seat with the AK or the Tech 9 or whatever right. the fuck it is, and he makes eye contact with the kid standing on the side of the road. <laughs> It's one of the shots of the movie, for sure. Yeah, it's really cool. I think they use that in the trailer. The driver of the truck that they're robbing breaks protocol in the middle and leaves the cabin, getting the jump on Doug, putting his gun to him. I'm assuming that's the guard that Doug was talking about. Someone who would break protocol during a robbery. Jem shoots him, the guard, and everything goes awry. Immediately, a police chase ensues. Yeah, it's super cool. And it's all done in the narrow, tangled back streets of Boston, which I've never been to, but I guess super it's notoriously narrow. hard to drive yeah, through. Yeah. A lot of one-ways, narrow streets, different crap. They eventually get penned in, and their only way out of it is opening heavy fire on the cops. I wasn't paying super close attention, though. Is it just Jem that's shooting at the cops at this point, or are more than one of them doing it? No, I think it's multiple at this point. Because they have to, like, shoot their way out of there. Glonzy with some skilled driving in the getaway. They manage to make it to the switch car, so the cops won't know what car they're looking for. There's some obvious exposition dialogue where they keep shouting, just get Uh, to the switch. Was someone helping them with the switch car? Because they don't pull up to a parked car, right? Like, it comes out from the other 
alley. No, no, it's a parked car. Is it? Okay. It's just blocking the alley, I guess. I think they actually have two switch cars on this job. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Oh, that's true, because then they go to the other parked car once they get to the other side of the bridge. Right. They try closing the bridge, but the bridge barricade is late, and then there's that great moment yeah. with the solo cop who turns away as he watches them get out of that van right. with the nun masks and the guns. <laughs> Heavy and artillery, yeah. This was apparently based on a real story that Affleck got when he was talking to convicted bank robbers. Someone okay. provided this story. Yeah. Makes total sense. Totally. If I was this cop, this is absolutely the move. <laughs> you want to get into a gunfight with these guys? I think the line is only in the extended cut, but they're laughing about it in the, like immediately after. And I think it's Jem that says, he didn't want to get his picture up on the wall in the VFW. That's right. <laughs> Something yeah. like that, which is a brutal line, but it's perfect. Yeah. How do you feel about the aftermath of this job where Dino and Frawley are examining the charred remains of the burned cars and everything? Get and me something that looks like a print. Frawley says, this is the not fucking around crew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is that a bit much? I, yeah, maybe. <laughs> because... He is almost acting like something worse has happened, as if they killed cops or something. Well, he did shoot the guard this time. Yeah, I know, but he lives. <laughs> Although, you know. If Frawley had his chance. Yeah. His plan is to claim to pull a bogus print off of one of the switch cars so that they can drag these four in for questioning. I'm not sure how this would all hold up in court, but he's trying to rattle their cage, I guess, a little bit, because it's the frustrating situation where... They know who's doing it, essentially, but they can't get 24-hour surveillance because they're not terrorists. They don't know what they're doing at all times, and then there's not enough evidence to actually do anything about it. They just know. It's all circumstantial, though. Taking sick days on the days of the robberies is enough to get you on the right track, but it's not enough to do anything with that. Right. Hey, Dougie, how are you? Oh. How you doing? Local crime fighter. What's happening, Gino? I know your father. Yeah, me too. Got a few years left on his bed. Yeah, one or two. I hear they go after the old guy. Split him up the back. Fucking animals. You'd think they'd go after a younger kid. I don't know. Making a statement, I guess. Townie crews ain't what they used to be. Dorchester, Southie, looking to make a move. Maybe you can change all that when you get up there. Let me ask you a question. What do you call a guy who grows up with a group of people and gets to know all their intimate secrets, the stories of their lives, because they trust him, and then turns around and uses those secrets against them and put those people in prison? You call him a rat, right? You know what I call him? Do you know the Dago? Those people made you a part of that community. What do they get for it? Inside of the fucking can. You know we lifted a print off the van, right? Special Agent Farley. Douglas McRae. You and your boys didn't just Roll a star market over in Malden for a box of quarters. No, you decided to bang it out in the North End at 9 o'clock in the morning with assault rifles. 
you fucking dummies shot a guard. Now you're like a half-off sale at Big and Tall. Every cop is in line. Fortunately, though, for you, this guard, who is two-thirds to a retard, has miraculously clung to life. Now, if it were up to me, and they gave me two minutes and a wet towel, I would personally asphyxiate this half-wit so we could string you up on a federal M1 and end this story with a bag on your head and a paralyzing agent running through your veins. This isn't fucking Tommy Hopscotch anymore, Doug. But I did want to say one thing, just so we're both very, very clear. Because in these situations sometimes, you know, various parties will bandy about the possibility of sentence reduction for cooperation or, or otherwise assisting the, assisting the prosecution. Not this time. You're here today so I could personally tell you that you are going to die in federal prison. And so are all your friends. No deal. No compromise. And when that day comes, when you start trying to be my hero collaborator so hard that I have to slap you to shut up, and it will come, despite your pitiable, misguided Irish omerta, when your code of silence finally gives way to fear of trafficking in cigarettes to prevent sexual enslavement, I just want you to know that it's going to be me who tells you to go fuck yourself. Hey, next time you guys want to take pictures of me, just call ahead. You know, we can do better than a barbecue, like a calendar shoot. You know, maybe topless, lubed up, whatever you guys are into. FBI, car antennas, a half-inch matte black, about three-quarters of the way down the rear windshield. Stadia, pigtailed, BPD, half and half. Every peewee in the town knows what an FBI rear antenna looks like. So in the future, you guys can try to be slick. Be slicker than a six-year-old. Hey, back to work. Can I go? Good luck with that print. Ultimately, once they bring them in for questioning, they get nothing, and they have to turn them loose. But not before Frawley says that it will be him to tell Doug to go fuck himself before it's all said and done. Yeah. Like I said, he seems very personally invested in this. Doug is doing this at him. Yeah. Well, I think that he's just portraying a specific type of character. Yeah. I don't know that it necessarily is personal, but no, he's the no, type I of think guy who makes it personal. so invested in his job. Yeah. It's McNulty. But there's also this other angle with his partner who there is sort of a personal element just because I don't think that's his motivations, but just for the overall story with the partner coming from that town and like Dino. Yeah, being involved in all these people's lives. Facing a roadblock, Frawley turns back to Claire and discovers she's quit her position at the bank, which makes him once again suspicious. There is a lot more to this angle in the extended cut where he and Claire go out on a date, then he's trying to go on a second date, all this different stuff. So it almost makes you question some of his motivations and some, where some of his emotion comes from. Is there a personal jealousy? Is he personally angry with Claire over what he perceives as some kind of a rejection? Eliminating that from the story 
streamlines it and makes it simpler, but it also takes away some of the interesting nuance nuance to his character. Doug gives Claire a necklace and asks her to go away with him, and she accepts. And how long have they been dating at this point? <laughs> Seems like only a couple days, yeah. but I don't know. You would think that even if Jem is being impatient and really pushing, that the time between jobs has to be at least a was, minimum of a certain amount. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like that much time has gone by. I know. At most, it feels like it's been a couple weeks since the beginning of the movie. It's not quite to the level of a Scorsese, but there is a little bit of that montage feel to some of this For movie sure. where it moves quickly through time and it, it's edited in a way where... It could literally be three days or it could be six months. Right. You're not really sure. Yeah. Probably not six months, but... Probably more than three days. Yeah, it's it's really hard to tell. It just seems like it's all happening at once. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, since Claire quit her job, Frawley decides to tap her phone and her relationship with Doug is, revealed. is discovered. Yeah. In response, he shows Claire his files on Doug and the others, listing them as the prime suspects in the robbery in which she was kidnapped and then threatening to prosecute her as an accomplice. So everything starts crashing down around Doug, even though he's not aware of it yet. Uh huh. The florist has a new big time score that Doug wants no part of. And this leads to a heated confrontation between him and Jim that shines a little more light on their past. They fight, and then yeah. Jim hits th- Doug with a pistol. I think it's one of the scenes of the movie, like their confrontation here. He's insistent that Doug is in too deep to walk away. Yeah. There's people I can't let you leave. They are alluding to the fact that Doug is the father of Shine, Krista's kid, and Doug is pretty insistent that it's not his kid. Yeah. Now, I don't know if he's living in denial here. <laughs> um <laughs> It does seem like they leave it pretty ambiguous that he could be the dad. Yeah, there's no definitive answer in any of the versions of the film. So yes, it is a possibility that in the universe of the film that Doug actually is the father. And it kind of puts a little bit of a dark cloud on Doug. Well, I would assume that they are expecting the audience to think that he's telling the truth, that he's just not the father. Yeah, yeah. That he somehow knows. Right. (laughs) Although Jem is not seeing any other alternatives. He's using Shine, though, as a prop for what he wants. Right. He doesn't give a shit about yeah. Shine, or even his sister, There's probably. people I can't let you walk away from. Meaning him. Yeah. That's who he really means. <laughs> yeah. You can't walk away from me. I want to do this, and I need you to do it. And I went to jail for murdering this kid that, that was, was going to murder kill you. you. Yeah. Which some neighborhood this was. Something wrong with the apartment? No. Florist. Flores what? Came through. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's large, Dougie. It's large. We're smoked. Hunters. Who else is going to buy it? You should have thought about that before you fucking kept breaking the guy off for 40 dimes after every job. It's an expectation, right? I'll correct his expectation. Oh, you will? Okay. Yeah. Look. Look, look. Pick up an extra guy. All right? Or go with three guys. Or fucking be smart and boot it. So you're not going? No. Why is that? Because we got a ton of fucking heat on us, for one thing. We'll put a move on him, right? We've done it a hundred times before. You know what? Forget it. Do what you want to do. I'm done. What? I'm what? done. You're done? What does it sound like? I don't know. What's that, what's that mean? 
the fuck you think it means? What does that mean you're done? It sounds like a bunch of fucking bullshit. Let me put it to you this way. I'm putting this whole fucking town in my review. There's people I can't let you walk away from. What? Who? Come on. Are you serious, Jimmy? She's not my kid. Cut it out. All you give a fuck about is Coke and Xbox. Now you're trying to play it off like you care about Shine? Come on now. You know what your fucking problem is? What? You think you're better than people. Uh-huh. Mr. Fucking Clean and Mr. Fucking Goddamn Hide and Mighty, right? Yep, I'm better than all these people. Yeah. You're right. That's I'm what better you think. than anybody in this fucking project. You grew project. up right here. Same rules that I did. Okay. What else? What the fuck's the fuck? I know I'm not. We're the one fucking her. Yeah, I wasn't the only one, brother. Okay? She knew I knew I'm not the father, and I have enough respect for her not to ask her. Okay? Because I don't think she knows. All right? I don't want to shatter your illusions here, partner. They're in the fucking free clinics in Mattapan to find out who the father of that kid is. And I don't know who the fuck you think you are, either. You aren't letting me or not letting me do shit. All right? Here's a little fucking cheat sheet for you. It's never gonna be me and you and your sister and Shine fucking playing house up there. All right? You got it? Get that in your fucking head. I'm tired of your one-way fucking bullshit. If you want to see me again, come down and visit me in Florida. Go. In the 302, feds have me dropping Brennan right here. I got him back on Tibbetts. Shot him right in the chest. I remember he looked at me, and we, I don't know who was more fucking surprised he wasn't dead, you know, him or me. We just kind of stood there. For a second, like, waiting for some shit to happen, I don't know what, but... He started running. Fucking guy around a hundred yards with a ball on his heart. Dougie, the fucking guy, just, the fucking guy shouldn't run track. You know what I'm saying? Didn't have shit to do with that. Yeah, well, you didn't have to, Dougie. Come on. They told me Brendan Leahy was coming down here to roll up on you with a Glock 21. So I came over here and I put him in the fucking ground. Then nine years for it. Now you don't go to thank me. But you're not walking away. I'm grateful for everything you've done for me. Your family took me in when my father went away. You're like a brother to me. But I'm leaving. You shoot me? Go ahead. But you're gonna have to shoot me in the back. In real life, it seems like Affleck would probably destroy Renner, 
yeah. just because he's huge. Renner is not a tall guy. No, no. Affleck seems well over six feet, like That's six right. five something. Yeah, jacked. He was like a defenseman. Supposedly was playing pro hockey and got <laughs> yeah, kicked like out for fighting his Zidane own teammates. Chara. <laughs> so let's summarize where we're at. We have this crew. They've committed two robberies thus far. They want to commit a third one, but Doug wants to walk away. He has his history with Jem's sister, but he is denying that he's the father of Krista's child. He's in a relationship that has not ended yet, technically, with an assistant bank manager who was kidnapped by his crew during a bank robbery, but now the FBI has revealed to her, this woman, Claire, that her boyfriend Mm -hmm. is one of the robbers that took her at gunpoint into a van and has ruined her life. Really quite a predicament to find yourself in, huh? At this point, we don't really fully grasp the florist Fergie's influence and his role to play, but that will become more clear momentarily. Claire is shocked and horrified to learn the truth about Doug and essentially starts to cooperate with the FBI. Mm -hmm. She wants nothing more to do with him, which is understandable. For now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. However, aside from the whole Claire situation, there's one more problem that Doug isn't counting on, and that is the involvement of Fergie in this thing that Jem wants to do. I'll get up. How you doing, Fergie? Listen, uh, just wanted to stop by and tell you myself, whatever this thing is you got going on, uh, I think my guys can handle it without me. You know what I mean? I wouldn't hire them without you. And I wouldn't hire you without them. You're a unit. Look, with all due respect, I didn't come here for a debate. I'm not doing it. So, you know, work it out however you can. Calm down. Okay. Goes against my better judgment, but just out of respect, smooth things over. Just take this part, all right? Not gonna cut it. Do you think I'm gonna put Joe Flipperhead on this? You're gonna do what I ask. Cut. Okay. Let me ask you something. Who the fuck do you think you are? The only guy in Charlestown with a gun? You guys run numbers and pump dope. You're an old guy with a fucked up face who don't know his glory is behind him. I ain't fucking working for you. Got it? You got a problem with that? I live at 551 Bunker Hill Street. Stop by any time. You know where to find me. You're going to do this for me? Or I'm going to clip your nuts. Like I clip your daddies. We'll talk about my father. Son, I knew your daddy. He worked for me for years, years. Then he wanted his own thing. Play the horses. You know, they either geld a horse with a knife or with the chemicals. And your daddy said no to me. I did him the chemical way. Gave your mother a taste. Put the hook into her. And she doped up good and proper. Hung herself with a wire on Melnair cast. And you, run around the neighborhood looking for her. Your daddy didn't have the heart to tell his son that he was looking for a suicide doper who was never coming home. If there's a heaven, son, she ain't in it. 
Oh. I hear you got a nice, sweet new girlfriend. Lives on the park. I don't want to send her a funeral arrangement to your house. But I will if I have to. Now I know where to find you. Fergie threatens to kill Claire if Doug does not do the job he wants him to do, revealing that he controlled his father by turning Doug's mother into a junkie, which led to her suicide, which Doug never knew the truth about. Doug is forced to agree to be a part of this thing, but swears he will kill Fergie if anything happens to Claire. So we finally get the truth about Doug's mother, and based off of what we've heard from Doug's father... I would definitely posit the theory that Doug sees a lot of his mother probably subconsciously in Krista, which is why he's both simultaneously attracted to her and also repulsed by her. Yeah. Usually, like, two good qualities to have in someone you're in a relationship with. Yeah. You don't like them, and they're a drug addict. Yeah. And they're also insane. (laughs) But you're also attracted to them. Yeah. Again, I'm not really sure how Doug doesn't know the truth about his mother already. It seems as if people at would some talk. point would have mentioned this, yeah. but okay. Like we said, it feels like Jem would have to know. Late night, you know, those two hanging out, and he's still like, yeah, I can't believe my mom ran off to Florida. <laughs> and Jem's just like, dude. Come on, dude. <laughs> yeah. Well, if Doug and Jem are essentially the same age, then Jem would have been six also when this happened. True. It is possible that Jem doesn't know, but... Someone would have known. Right. The last time Doug saw Claire, she says, never let me see you again, crying. Literally 30 seconds of scream time later, here he comes when she's in this fucking garden. Uh Uh-huh. And he's saying, just wait for me. And he's trying to convince her by coming clean, telling her the truth to any questions she asks. This is particularly funny in the theatrical cut just because of the short amount of time. It is noticeable. Never let me see you again. Yeah. One quick scene of him going back to the florist to tell him, like, fine, I'll fucking do this job and I'll kill you. Right back to talking to Claire instantly. (laughs) Yeah. He felt like the door was open. She wasn't so strong in her convictions when she said never again. Which brings us to Fergie's score, the last score, the big heist. Great build up to it. Him explaining to these dudes the history or whatever, and then, like, leading into them being at Fenway Park. It's a really unique, really awesome experience cinematically. Robbing Fenway Park is something so original seeming. Yeah. It's not just a stadium or a baseball stadium. It's this iconic baseball park, one of the true notable places in sports in America, which lends itself to a completely original seeming background to everything. And I had no idea. I mean, I'm sure this is the big heist of the book, too, right? This is not something they changed. I don't know. Unclear. I can't remember. Okay. A shock that this was going to be the the final big set piece. Like I think a, a they sort of reveal shock. it in the trailer, though. Okay. I don't I'm pretty re- sure Pete Postlethwaite says, taken down the, the cathedral uh, Yeah, okay. <laughs> Prices. I didn't know. I, I really didn't know, like, going into it. R.I.P. to Pete Postlethwaite, who yeah. passed away only a couple of months after this movie was released. That's I think right. it was January of 2011. He's done this in Inception in sort of a short period of time. Sure, yeah. Fergie has a guy on the inside with a gambling sickness, and he's into Fergie for a lot of money. So he provides this information and a way to get in. The plan is to rob 
just before the cash is taken out of the stadium after a four-game series with the New York Yankees, which will lead to a $3.5 million score. However, Frawley and Dino are powerless. They are spying on the florist shop. They know the gang's all there, but they don't know what they're saying. They don't have the resources or the permission to bug anything or pursue this further. So Frawley needs to find a weak spot in order to figure out what the crew's next move is. He quickly identifies one in Krista. (laughs) Krista does not get a ton of moments to shine, especially in the theatrical cut. In fact, by the point she comes back into it, it's been a while since we've seen her. Yeah. I found that most surprising in revisiting the town after all these years. because Not much screen time. I distinctly remember a bigger impression from her. Yeah, yeah. And I was shocked at how We were walking out of there being like, holy shit, Blake Lively. (laughs) You would have thought she was the star of the movie. Right. Frawley identifies her drug work. He uses shine as a threat over her head. Right before we started recording, I showed you the extended version of the bar scene. Incredible. And does that incredible joke. Yeah. I was at a bar one time where a guy was doing a hugging contest. Just a real piece of work. Some of the girls actually went with it. Allowed them to be themselves to be judged. He's squeezing them, grabbing their ass, everything. Finally, he got sick of it and went up to him and said, I, I'm having a face-punching contest. Krista seems like amused by this and uh-huh. laughs. And she's like, I would have punched him myself. Bartender comes over, drops off a drink. There's just like this great pause. Then Frawley says, by the way, I'm judging a fucking contest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't believe they didn't find a way to keep that in. It's almost like the most different that he's been in that entire movie. So Yeah, because he's being charming enough in the theatrical cut, but when you provide all this other stuff, it seems like he's really putting in the work. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, Ham is such an attractive guy that it's completely believable that uh, someone who looks like Blake Lively would be interested. Uh-huh. And then this provides even more of building up a comfort zone before that turn, before her heart sinks. That's you know, right. She realizes what's going on. Yeah. She doesn't crack yet in this scene, but she's definitely nervous. And then as that last second, let me make sure I'm pushing this over the finish line, Frawley brings up the necklace. He plays the jealousy uh-huh. card. And all that time you and Doug McRae were together, do you ever buy you a necklace? Yeah. She's just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, planting a seed there. The build-up to the actual robbery is a little quicker in the theatrical cut, but it leaves in, of course, the great yeah. line where Jem says, if we get jammed up, we're holding court in the street. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think him saying that right then, I'd be like, you know what? I'd change my mind I'm again. Not in. I'm not doing yeah. this. This is a bad idea. But Jim, of course, is all or nothing all the time. Right. Which seems like it would be exhausting not only for him, but for all of the people around him. Well, it's not going to last, and we'll find out it doesn't. Krista makes a last-ditch effort with Doug, and she brings shine. Does not go well. No. (laughs) He tells her that there's someone else that he wants to leave with when this is over. And then she, in her emotional state, slips up and reveals that she knows about the necklace and Doug does notice it and he flips out. He actually like slams her against the wall or something. And then shine starts crying and it's a whole scene. And so, yeah, he does pick up on it and he notices it and thinks of it as a big deal, but he does move on kind of quickly. And I was thinking, wouldn't this put Doug on even higher alert than it seems that maybe we should pull the plug on because 
rationally, how the fuck would she know about this necklace? Something right. is happening. He maybe wouldn't even be able to put it all together. Something's off, though. But something's not right. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So let's talk about the Fenway Park heist. In order to do this and actually film at Fenway Park, they had to have Major League Baseball's approval for everything. So I think when it's Dez that gets shot, they actually used a different version with way less blood than the one that they wanted to use. Okay. There were just little notes that they had to adhere to. But it ends up being so cool, though, because there's nothing else that looks like it. No, I know. And you can't really recreate this in any way. It's an amazing final action set piece for any movie. One of the coolest moments of something that I saw in the theater over the past 10 to 15 years. There's far more setup in the extended cut, including the misdirection scheme, where they know that they're being monitored so that they set up a fake start to a heist so that it'll send everybody over to somewhere else. Gotcha. They cut all of that out in the theatrical cut, and I actually think it works better that they cut it out just because the timeline is already really difficult to buy, and if you throw that into the mix then it becomes almost impossible for me to buy the timeline for the FBI here. Because, okay, the whole Krista Frawley thing here at the end ends up feeling very cluttered. And this is what I mean by the FBI timeline. So at some point after she leaves the hotel that's across the street from Fenway, Uh she gets pulled over for a DWI. She has the arresting officer call Frawley from the FBI to help her out. He shows up wherever she's been arrested. By the way, you have to just put... It's not like you're seeing this. You're just having to put this together through conversation. You see the cop call Frawley. You have that conversation. Well, yeah, yeah. But this feels so quick, and it's weird that it happens within the space of... Between her talking to That's what I mean. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Because the timeline, it gets so condensed. I'm assuming that in their logic, it's possible that more time has gone by than what it seems like. But from the viewer's perspective, we just saw her in Doug's hotel room. We haven't seen the sunset yet, so it's the same day in our minds. Right. All of a sudden, she's getting pulled over. Frawley's going here, there, everywhere. He goes, tracks her down. He's basically like, in order for you to ever see your kid again, you're going to have to give me information because we have the Child Protective Services taking shine away. It's a whole thing. Uh Uh-huh. And it's cut in a way, so this is all happening at once, like almost concurrently with the Fenway Park job. If they're in the middle of robbing Fenway Park while this is going on, there's just no fucking way that they could get all these cops over there. The timeline just doesn't make sense to me. Right. Especially in the extended cut when they're being led all over town to some other fake robbery and then pulling over fucking Krista, then going to get information from her. It just doesn't seem possible that this could all happen at the same time. Yeah, unless what we saw was it's the day before she leaves. What happens is the night before, and then they're like trying to time it up so that they can catch him in the act. I don't even know how you would do that though, because how do they know when they're gonna hit this place? They don't, and it's it that is unclear clear. whether or not even Krista knows. Yeah, although that is clear that they don't know because when he shows up, they're still in there, and he's like, "We did we already miss him? Are we too right. early?" You have to assume that. Krista's at least able to provide them the day that yeah. they're going to do it. I don't know that she would know all of the details. Hard to explain. But essentially, because of her own legal problems, she provides enough information to the FBI for them to know what's going to happen. 
At Fenway, thanks to Fergie's source on the inside, Doug and Jem are able to enter disguised as Boston police officers. They look legit, too. Yeah. And they've got that asshole cop thing down. Yeah, yeah. Steal the $3.5 million fairly easily. There is some bullshit, but they're able to do it. And then prepare to escape in an ambulance dressed as paramedics. Dez does his thing with a distress call, and Glonzy already dressed as a paramedic, boosts the ambulance that they're going to need. One thing I will circle back to is when they're outside the cash room, and they know all the information about the two guys in the cash room. Uh-huh. The Lindas. The Lindas really want you to open this door. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, Linda. So Krista does cave, and the FBI has the information on the score and are able to surround the premises unbeknownst to the crew. It ends up being Doug who notices the silence and stillness just as they're all about to make their departure from Fenway. He just knows something's not right. Yeah, because there's no one around. There were people around, and then there's no one around all of a sudden. Doug sees the law enforcement presence outside just before Jem opens fire at some he sees on the inside. Jem actually, it doesn't even seem clear what he sees. It seems right. like a flash of light or something. Seems, all of a sudden he's shooting. And it's actually sort of weird because that seems like there's a serious team inside sort of zoning in on them, like cornering them. But the cops outside seem to still have no idea whether or not they like yeah. there's even something happening. That's true. So it's sort of weird. These cops aren't in contact with each other. The only explanation I could come up with is that the people on the inside seem to be one branch. I don't know if they're supposed to be cops and then the FBI doesn't know what's going on or if they're FBI and then the cops don't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, that's possible. It's sort of unclear because there is that jurisdiction stuff in a few minutes where they're yelling at each other and that whole thing. Right, So one group was already in there. I'm not sure which. Yeah. But yeah, Outside, Frawley, who for all intents and purposes seems to be in charge, doesn't seem to know exactly what's going on. And then all of a sudden there's a team inside that's like right on top of them. Right. Yeah, it's not super explained there. This sequence is cool. You do almost wish that there was like a little bit more to it. It does kind of all happen like pretty quickly where like Dez is just dead. (laughs) And then they're like, okay. I, I don't know. Like when I was watching it, I just felt like, from here on, my memory is there's like a little bit more to this firefight, but it is actually like there's not that much to it before it's like jam on his own. Right. There's just some firing on the inside. Des gets hit. It's not heat where they're running through the streets for like a half hour. No, it's definitely a modified scaled down version of, of that scene in heat. Although yeah. I do think that was a big influence on this scene. Yeah. The gunfire reveals their location though, because as we've alluded to, it does seem like the people on the outside are sort of clueless even as to where exactly they are and right. what's happening. So then all of a sudden the firing starts. There's a bit of a standoff. They're firing outside, especially after Dez gets killed. Doug starts firing outside at, towards Frawley in that direction. It all builds towards Glonzy's absurd sacrifice, which seems to only be in service of the plot rather than anything else. I know. This idea that he has to get himself killed only makes sense when you think of it well, as I a movie. Well, I thought his idea was to get himself arrested. Well, okay. it only makes sense when you think of this as a movie where we need to protect the main characters for longer for storyline purposes. Right. Because why would he come up with this? Yeah. I can take a pinch. 
So he drives out in the ambulance thinking that he's going to get arrested. He ends up getting shot and killed. And the whole point of it is that because they were spotted at the end of the heist wearing the EMT uniforms, everyone's looking for EMTs. But uh-huh. Jem and Doug would have the option to go back to being dressed as cops who no one seems to be looking for at the moment. And they can sort of slip out amongst all the chaos wearing the police uniforms. However, after Glonzy is killed and Frawley realizes that they've only really accounted for two of the four, Dino and Frawley are alerted to the information that cops were the ones that started the heist. And then Frawley spots Jim and starts following him. Yeah. In a moment that I don't think you're supposed to root for Jim, but when these two have a confrontation, I'm kind of pulling for Jim in it. They exchange gunfire in a parking lot. Seems impossible that Jem does not hit Frawley. <laughs> and on the street, that's exactly what I wrote. How does Jem not hit Frawley? It doesn't even make sense, yeah. really. They're at close range. He's got an automatic weapon. Jem is wounded in the middle of like this crazy traffic. He ducks down behind this mailbox. Just one last sip yeah. from that drink that's in there. And I'm <laughs> like, how good must that food taste? Soda. Yeah. That must taste better than any... Dr. Pepper ever. Oh, I'm yeah. sure I, I imagine it's a Dr. Pepper, nice and cold. <laughs> it probably isn't, but that's in my yeah. my head I'm thinking. And rather than go back to prison, Jem commits suicide by cop. So many citizens endangered in this moment. Oh really? Opening fire in the middle of traffic, this busy street. And Doug witnesses it all because he's standing off in the distance and he notices Frawley following Jem, so then he starts following the situation. Yeah, you almost more, think it's like so suspicious that all the other cops are like engaged with this, and then there's this dickhead standing there not doing anything. Yeah, I know. <laughs> when he sees Frawley start following Jem, his move there should be to walk away. Yeah. But, you know, he's got that loyalty to Jem. Knowing that Claire may still yet be in danger, and also that he will never truly be free, Doug arrives at the flower shop and murders both Fergie and Fergie's bodyguard. He even points his gun to Fergie's crotch and clips his nuts. Yeah. (laughs) Fergie threatened to clip his like he clipped his daddy's. Yeah, Fergie is very fond of saying daddy, which is weird. (laughs) He then calls Claire and watches from across the street. Now, this is definitely bringing up memories of Heat, this scene. I mean, this is like the... Val Kilmer, Ashley Judd scene. He's watching with binoculars. This was the payoff to the uncle setup, having a window across the street from Claire's apartment. For those of you that can actually remember that he made that joke. Yeah. Because it's not obvious. It's not like you see his uncle, you know? No. There is that picture of him, though. Yeah. I think maybe it just, I don't know, if is, is it just the extended cut where he leaves the money behind the picture? I'm not sure. When he walks away from the scene, does he have any money from the heist? I didn't think he actually is carrying anything, right? Like, Jem has that bag of money. From that specific heist, I don't know. He's got the parachute money that he takes. That's right. But it doesn't seem like anybody actually walks away with any of the Fenway money. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he's carrying anything. Yeah. Doug can see the FBI in Claire's apartment waiting, but she tells him to come over. He then stalls and gives her a chance to change her mind, and she eventually does giving him a verbal clue to stay away. She describes the situation of him coming over to be just like her sunny days. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. 
which means bad. She stinks. Doug flees the city donning an MBTA uniform and escaping on a train. A lot of city professional services outfits at play for this last day. Yeah, they just have access. This yeah. is part of their their situation. Frawley more or less eventually deduces that Claire must have tipped him off, but the tip was far too cryptic to prove anything, so he's frustrated and just has to leave to find a note on the back window of his car that says, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> he even says, sunny days, huh? He knows what the tip yeah, was, yeah. but because it's so weird, it's right, not like natural, this, but yeah. I guess the idea is that it's not enough to really prove like, anything. Yeah. It's just some stupid shit she said. Right. Well, then he's like, you know we're a national organization. Claire, take this. You'll do better with it than I can. By the time you read this, I'll be long gone. Not the way I planned it, but for the first time in my life, I'm leaving this city. Maybe if I go, I can stop looking. you change you still have to pay the price for the things you've done so I got a long road but I know I'll see you again this side or the other Doug is gone and in the aftermath of his exit, Claire finds the bag of money buried in that big garden. Yeah, he really took his time getting out of town. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not even sure if it's really worth all this shit that he's doing. But For a girl that he was maybe dating for as little as three days. <laughs> Inside the bag is also a tangerine, which I guess tangerine indicates where Florida. he is. What if she didn't find it right away and there's just like a big rotten tangerine in that bag i love that the promised land in this movie is florida just like the worst (laughs) (laughs) no offense like yeah yeah yeah. come on we know claire makes a donation with the money to the local hockey rink in the memory of doris mccray doug's mother we see bearded affleck on some shack next to the water it's like not even a house it's i don't even know just like a platform with a roof on it (laughs) I'm like, what is this? I, I don't know if it's supposed to be like his dock or something, and there is like a house back behind it, but... I don't think so. I think that was the house. This is it. This is his life now. Charlestown seemed better. Being Jim's roommate seemed better than this. So when they released the big special Blu-ray of this movie, they did the theatrical cut, the extended cut, and then the extended cut with the alternate ending. So they did an extended cut with the normal ending, which is what we just went through, but then they also did the alternate ending. The alternate ending is strange, and it's not even what happens in the book, to the best of my recollection. After he walks away in the MBTA uniform, instead of going onto a train, he goes to a car. 
that I guess has been waiting, like a secret car. However, it turns out that Fergie has sold him out before getting killed to those guys that he and Jim beat up and Jim shot for harassing Claire, and they're waiting for him at the car. There's a long standoff with the guy with the fucked up legs where the guy's friends are encouraging him to just shoot him, and then eventually he does. And then you see a news story that Claire is watching where Doug has been found dead after getting shot. The news mistakenly assumes it has something to do with dividing up the money after the robbery, although mm. eventually they would know that couldn't be true because they know it's a four-person crew and the other three guys are dead. Right. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that. I and think I- what happens in the book is that he and Fergie both shoot each other. He makes it to Claire's house and dies. That I could get b- from, more behind. He got from the wound from yeah. being shot by Fergie. Right. That would be more fitting, I think. But I'm I'm fine with the ending the way it is. Yeah, there's also some other shit. Krista opens the door to her house, and there's just a giant duffel bag of money. Okay, yeah. Which I'm like, yeah, I don't know if giving her that much cash yes. is really going to be a good idea. <laughs> I don't think that money's going to shine, unfortunately. No. Oxy. <laughs> so in other words, she's dead within 24 right. hours. Yeah. <laughs> there's definitely some benefits to checking out the extended cut, but... Again, it's sort of like a lot of these things. I almost prefer a hybrid. There's some stuff that I would be like, they definitely should have kept this. This is great. This helps out. And then there's other stuff. It's like, okay, okay, okay. Let's trim this. Uh Make this shorter. Which is usually what happens when there's like a 30 plus minute difference between the two cuts. Right. There's obviously going to be some of those 30 minutes that you don't really need. So, folks, that's the town. Yeah. It's always a fun watch. Years go by and it's a movie that I think about and will pop on. It's not something you feel like is one of the all-time great movies or anything, but it is one of those great, what I consider more of like a Hollywood movie, but is well done, too. Yeah, big time movie stars, action, heist, crime, a big enough budget where it's not going to look terrible, a fun way to pass a couple hours. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. So let's get to recommendations. Do you have one? Yes, I do. Okay. Do you want me to go? Yeah. I'm a little bit apprehensive, though, because I'm not sure if you've recommended this before. Doesn't matter, really. Okay. We've uh, repeated. But you texted me about it, actually. And uh, sort of a not readily available movie but it is streaming on Criterion Channel right now under the Richard Linklater section. Uh, I have not okay. recommended this. Suburbia. <laughs> I wasn't sure if it had come up some, somewhere before where it was... Cause, I mention it from time to time because it was part of that 90s era that was such a big influence yeah. on my life, like Clerks and Go. I probably mentioned it in both of those Well, episodes. it's a super cool movie from his filmography, and it's never... It did stream on Netflix at one point, like years and years ago. For like a brief yeah, that must have been a long ass time ago. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was the early days of streaming, and it, I only remember being on there like briefly. But it's a really cool movie, and it's like darker than some of his other stuff. I mean, it is that '90s slacker feel. Yeah, it's based on a play written by Eric Bogosian. Yeah, who I think did the screenplay for this too. Yeah, they may have just used uh, yeah the play. I don't know. Straight, yeah, but it's sort of a a companion piece. To Dazed and Confused, instead of 
Except high schoolers in the 70s, it's young 20-year-olds in yeah. the 90s. And this is like what happened to them. They're so optimistic and everything is so nice in high school. And then it's like... Yeah, not age-wise. They yeah. would be significantly older. No, yeah. no, but I just mean like there's this fun-loving, carefree feel to Days and Confused where these people are like... No, yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Some crossover the reality. with a few of the cast members, including Parker Posey and... Nikki Cat. Nikki Cat, yeah. I actually bought the DVD when it came out recently because it had never been on DVD or Blu-ray. Right. And then WB Archives did a DVD of it. One of the big bugaboos with the film and why it was so hard to find is the soundtrack. There were some music issues that they couldn't get the license for. I think eventually they just cut that song out. Whatever it was, I can't remember. Which... You know, you see people like purists online sure. bitch about as if who even fucking remembers well, the songs. Yeah, from exactly. And it's like, well, wouldn't you rather have it than not? This is a movie that's been really hard to find and watch yeah. in the last 20 years. But you can now buy or rent an HD version, which I guess is beyond the DVD on Vudu. So there is like an HD scan of it out there. And then, yeah, it's streaming on Criterion, I'm sure, which probably means that at some point it'll, it'll be stream stuff. free somewhere. Yeah. But it is a super cool movie, and it has a lot of that same feel to some of his other stuff, and even like some of the early Kevin Smith stuff. Yeah. But with a little bit more heaviness to it, and a little bit of darkness there as well. A hilarious performance from Steve Zahn. Oh, yeah. Linklater's career is sort of interesting. It's all over the map from studio hits to like critical to, darling at times yeah critical indie darlings yeah. to movies that no one's heard of at right. all yeah and suburbia definitely falls into that it's weird because with the benefit of hindsight everyone considers dazed and confused this masterpiece uh-huh. that is a cult movie even though it's technically a studio picture but whatever it has this huge reputation it's it's endured for decades now at this point right but in the aftermath people were like so disappointed with that movie which is weird because i think far more people care about days and confused now than they do about slacker but Uh slacker was this innovative thing that people had never seen before and they're like this guy is the independent voice this is something completely new right and then days and confused i think a lot of people were initially let down which is Obviously, as I said, completely different now. Right. But at the time, and so I think in the aftermath of that, he did a couple of movies in the 90s that people just don't think about or ignore. Part of it was due to lack of availability, but also I think just no one ever cared in the first place. Yeah. One of them had McConaughey in it. I think it was like the Newton Boys or something like that. That's right. That's up in Criterion right now, too. I yeah, think. and I'm sure that I, they did that least... me and Orson Welles movie or whatever. Yeah, but that was in the into the 2000s, okay. right? Yeah, I, I I'm don't thinking know. about I'm, that I, one era. I've never seen that. I haven't either. Yeah. There's that era between Days and Confused and then like 2000. Or he something. has this weird like four hour thing on there that I didn't know what it was, but he's it like in the interview he said it's like one of the weirder things that he's done. Yeah. So yeah, if you haven't seen Suburbia, it's actually something that I wouldn't be opposed to trying on the show at some point it's a little weird though because it's a lot of talking there isn't really a lot of action or things happening yeah though we don't really shy away from that <laughs> i love that performance piece that the one girl does oh yeah it's like fuck howard stern <laughs> <laughs> yeah and everyone's just watching it as if it's not a completely embarrassing thing to see <laughs> you know what i mean right 
Oh, God. The 90s were a time for everybody. Indeed. My recommendation is a movie that I'm also reluctant to recommend just because it's so fucking depraved and horrifying that I think only a certain segment of our audience (laughs) would be able to handle this because it is fucking grim. Oh, boy. It's a foreign film. The film is Taiwanese, and it's a zombie film or a plague film called The Sadness, Ooh. which is streaming on Shudder. It's from 2021. It's a new movie. It is not for the faint of heart. Oh boy. So me. <laughs> I will say that it's so violent and crazy that you become desensitized to it, and it seems cartoonish at a certain point. All right. But there are through things that wall. in it that are basically impossible to describe without <laughs> okay. sounding like an insane monster for saying it. Yeah. But I had heard a lot of buzz about it because it's so crazy. There's basically some disease that turns people into these sadistic, cannibalistic monsters that just do the most fucked up things to each other. And there's a young couple at the center that are trying to get back to each other. They start the day, and then this whole thing breaks out, and then they're trying to get back to each other. That's the whole movie. But if you're not into very gratuitous, disturbing violence, I would say not to watch it. But it's cool that there's still stuff out there like this that's willing to push the envelope so hard, because most stuff is very sterile and boring. Sure. So you can check out The Sadness on streaming rental or... Sounds fun. Shudder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, if you're into zombie yeah, shit yeah. and gory, bloody stuff, then you'll probably like it. I can hack it. So that'll do it for the town. Follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Give us a rating and review if you get a chance on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like a sticker, let us know on Twitter, and we will send that to you for free. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. Do we have anything else? Rate and review. Say that? I think so. Okay. Let's double down on that. Please, rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We love to see it. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. I'm following the sun that's setting in the west. We're floating on a bed of fade and light. A canopy of trees bears witness to the breeze. I'm falling like a feather. Soft and light Baby, there's no better time No better time Baby, we can't find Oh, oh, oh Oh, oh, oh With eternal love The stars above To keep us side by side Baby, there's no better time No better time Baby, we can't find Oh, 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 oh.
not ashamed We got temptation We got it made We got rewarded We got refused We got distorted We got confused We got the sunshine We got the shade Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of Doctor Strange.